Welcome to American History Untucked. I'm your host, David Silkenet. Our guest for this episode is Jackie Witt. Uh, Jackie's an old friend of mine. We actually went to grad school together uh, at UNC Chapel Hill. Um, haven't had a chance to talk to Jackie in a couple of years, and so it was really great to have her on the show. Uh, we're talking mostly in the show about her new book, Bringing God to Men, the American Military Chaplains in the Vietnam War, uh, which is a book I got to see the beginnings of uh, as her doctoral dissertation uh, in grad school, and I was really great to be able to to read that book again, or read the sort of finished product of that uh, work and get a chance to talk to Jackie about it. And the other thing we talk about in this show is what it's like to teach at a military academy. I think a lot of us have some idea of what these military academies are like and what it's like to be a student there, but I had no idea really about what it was like to teach there and, and, and what the experience would be like for a civilian teaching a class of, of professional military students. Uh, so she's taught at West Point. She's now teaching at the uh, Air War College uh, in Alabama. And so we have a conversation about that. Here's my conversation with Jackie. Hey, Jackie. Good to have you on the show. Thanks, David. I guess uh, I haven't seen you in... Uh, Oh, it's been about two or three years since we actually saw each other. Yeah. I think it was, what was it, the AHA or something that we last got together. Right. I was probably still looking for a job. Well, you and me both. That's why people go yeah. to the AHA. Um, <laughs> so I haven't had a chance to congratulate you on the publication of the book that I know you've been slaving away at for, for longer than you probably want to think about, but... Uh, mm-hmm. So congratulations on that. I got Thank a chance to read it much. earlier, and uh, it's really, really good. But I know you have a disclaimer you need to read from your employer. Yes. So I am an employee of the Department of Defense and the Air Force, and so I should say up front that the views that I say or express are all of my own and do not represent the official policy of the DOD, the Air Force, or the Air War College where I work. <laughs> so with that... <laughs> Excellent. Now you can say whatever the hell you want. And, yes, and without exactly. getting in trouble, or can you get court-martialed working for the for the Air College? No, I can't. I'm a civilian, so I'm I'm still just subject to to normal okay. civilian so rules. You're not, you're not going to get locked away in, in yeah. you know some no. blacklisted uh, prison for uh, no, yeah, uh, no brig. So excellent. Okay, good. So as long as that we're not that's on the line, we've got to. <laughs> okay, so I, I I just finished reading the book, and I you know I had seen. Early, early drafts of, of things from from years ago when we were in, were in school together, uh, but I guess I never asked you like what really got you interested in chaplains in the first place. <laughs> I think it's a it's at least a funny story to me. So, and you may remember this when I first started graduate school, I thought I was going to write about Latin America, uh, the Cold War, and U.S. military assistance oh, yeah. and things like that. And um, I, it lasted for about a year, and it was interesting, but I couldn't imagine sustaining an entire uh, dissertation, much less a career on it. Mm-hmm. And so about maybe a week before we started our second year of graduate school, I went to see uh, my advisor and I said, I'm, I'm really unhappy with what I'm doing. I want to change topics. And he said, okay, what do you want to do? And I had no idea. Um, and so he said, well, I'll give you three weeks to come up with a new viable topic for your MA thesis. And that was the end of that conversation. So I left and I went back to Davis Library and I went down to the basement where they keep all the government documents. And I just started looking for interesting things. 
And so I found a, a run of military chaplain professional journals from the 1980s, so right after the Vietnam War. And they were talking about all sorts of things. They were talking about the all-volunteer force and then the decline in religious attendance and, and things like that that were happening as a result of Vietnam or just as a result of social change in the 60s and 70s. And I thought, well, this is sort of interesting. So I kept reading and I kept looking, and it turned out that there hadn't been much written about military chaplains after the Civil War. Mm-hmm. Um, because we tend to ignore religion in the 20th century in the U.S. And so it sort of started from there. And so I came up with a, with a new topic and a new proposal, and I've been doing it, doing it ever since. Yeah. You know, I, I think uh, maybe our class was, was maybe not representative of this, but maybe it was, that, that people go into graduate school thinking they're going to study one thing and end up studying something else entirely. Well, I think you just know so rel- you just know relatively little when you start out, and you keep you keep reading and you keep expanding your base of knowledge and what you know. Um, and the things that seemed interesting or important at one point um, don't always turn out to be that way. And the things that that you discover, the documents or the or the interesting stories or people, um, I think can really change the way you you look at the world. So. We had we had a bunch of people right change their I mean, change fields in some cases pieces, change, yeah. change what they were doing entirely. I, um, you know, I remember they found a new story. Yeah, I remember our what was it must have been our first class in graduate school. You know, Lloyd Kramer said, "Say who you are, where you went to undergraduate, and what your research project was." And I remember when he said that. I don't remember even if I had a research project and I was hoping to God he would not start at my part of the table because I needed five minutes to come up with yeah, something. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there were several people who were like, I just made something up that up, day. Yeah. I, I had no idea. Yes, yeah, so we're um, all trying to, to impress each other with our intellectual acumen. Yeah. about, And you know, people saying, my MA thesis is going to be on this and it's going to form chapter four of my dissertation, which is going to add to... Right. And I think maybe one person... I can only think ended of one up, person who actually ended up doing what they said they were going to do. Yeah, I uh, just remember, um, was it Tim telling a story about Fievel? That was my favorite. <laughs> uh, so. So when, you know, you got into chaplains, you know, not many people had written about chaplains, especially in the 20th century and definitely after World War II. Um, what was it about their experience that jumped out at you besides the sort of historical vacuum? Yeah, sure. I, I mean, filling gaps is nice, but I think it's it's even better when there's an actual story to tell. Um, so the story in Vietnam, when you think about religion and the way religious people sort of act in that war, um, the story we get is almost always one of religious dissent and protest and burning draft cards and um, helping conscientious objectors and things like that. But we know also just sort of intuitively that there had to have been religious people who were staunch supporters of the war or who were ambivalent about the war. And so in my, in my mind, I wanted to, to expand the, the range of religious responses to that war in particular, and then to look um, in, in the setting of combat, in the setting of the war itself, how that how that actually played out because um, religion is something that's so intensely personal, but it's also, you know, has corporate elements and things like that. Um, 
and so I think these were these were interesting people to get at an interesting um, interesting problem about how um, how people reconcile faith in war, how people deal with the cognitive dissonance that comes about, uh, and and what what that means for the military more broadly and for uh, perhaps even even the broader society. You know, one of the things that jumped out at me in the book, and it's something I guess it's true of chaplains in, in every war, but it, I hadn't seen anyone articulate it quite as well as you did, was the the way in which chaplains occupy a very liminal space in the military and this idea of, of role conflict, you know, that they're served somewhere, not really anywhere simultaneously. Uh, where did you, where did you, how'd you come up with that? And you can talk more about that. Yeah. So liminality is a, my, I think my editor made me remove almost all instances of it in the book. Um, <laughs> It because is kind of overused word at times. It's sort of jargony, but it um, it actually means, it, you know, it has meaning, and I think it has particular meaning in the field of religious studies um, where people talk about liminal uh, people and experiences and, and rites of passage and things like that. Um, and it, it, it means exactly what you said, just being in the middle, being neither here nor there, sort of betwixt and between. And chaplains... Um, they occupy this space and they occupy it very purposefully. And so in, in the field of religious studies, liminal spaces and liminal people are the, are critical ones in bridging uh, two contradictory worlds. So it might be life and death. It might be um, the sacred and the profane. There, there may be these places where, things that don't necessarily go together sort of meet up. So they're, um, to put it in another sort of jargony, trendy phrase, right? They're, they're borderlands mm -hmm. uh, that happen. Um, and these are mostly intellectual or psychological rather than physical ones. Mm -hmm. um, so that was, that's, that's the idea. So I, I end up calling, did you hear that jarring crash? I, I did hear that jarring crash. That was my cat. cat. He's ornery and naughty. No, I, I, I think I think everyone deserves to know the name of your cat, though, because I think that's relevant to all kinds of things working at the, the, the Air War College. In Alabama. In was, Alabama, um, yes. I have named my cat General Sherman um, after my favorite U.S. Civil War general, um, William Tecumseh Sherman. I have a deep and abiding affection for him. Okay. Um, but sometimes I go outside and call for the cat. He doesn't really go outside. I just think it's funny. Um, <laughs> To go out in my yard and call for General, General Sherman. Sherman. Yeah. Yeah. Is someone gonna burn your house anytime soon for No, I think I, I feed him, so I think I'm probably safe, but okay. other people may not be. <laughs> but that's what the that's what the crash was. Um, okay, great. He's still a kitten and he's always in trouble. Um but people in the middle, right? These are these are people who um who who have multiple identities. They're soldiers and, and clergy and their officers and they're in the army or the navy or the air force and they they are denominationally specific but ecumenical so they they intersect um, or their roles intersect at all of these different places and um, usually when people have written about chaplains they've talked about them as if they as if this causes great sort of psychological distress for them 
um, and they have a lot of difficulty dealing with the potential conflict. But I ended up finding actually the opposite is that they deal with the, the liminality pretty well and they understand that their role is to be in the middle of all of these different worlds and that perhaps more often than um, people might be comfortable with, um, their worlds don't conflict as much as they, uh, as they converge. And that sometimes the conflict is is internal. Sometimes it's competing religious ideals that chaplains are dealing with. Sometimes it's competing uh, military regulations or rules or standards that they're con- that they're dealing with. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it is that the religious realm and the military realm don't really match up at all. But I think that's actually relatively rare. Mm. I guess for the most part, these are men who put themselves in this position so they were comfortable with sort of occupying this gray area right they're all self-selected um clergy or even seminarians for most of the vietnam war were exempt from the draft and most of them are are older they've got more education than uh, the fighting force in vietnam so they're a very particular and sort of peculiar group and they all choose to be there and if they if they don't want to be there anymore, it's easy more than anyone else. It's easy for chaplains to get out. Hmm. Um, they can simply say that they want to have their endorsement uh, from their religious group withdrawn, and and they they're done. Um, and so they all choose to be there. And so the um, the sort of psychic or psychological problems and the cognitive dissonance that you might expect. To, to rack their brains and their lives just simply doesn't doesn't operate in the same way. You know, one of the, the parts of the book that I found really interesting was, that, you know, so they're able to cope with with all these contradictions that we might see during the war, but it's it's in the decades afterwards that you really see a, a, a kind of a diversity of opinions about what it is that happened to them and what it is it all means and how they're supposed to sort of think about what it is they participated in in war more broadly. Yeah, the post, post-war post making sense of the war, I think, is a, is a really interesting um, problem for military historians in particular. And it's something that more and more folks are writing about, um, especially as, as we become more comfortable uh, talking about history and memory and, and meanings of victory and defeat and things like that. But Vietnam holds such an important place in the American um, narrative and in, in terms of figuring out what, what it means to be American, what does it mean to lose in a war, what does it mean uh, to have the legacy of a long war. And I think the, the, the questions that chaplains are asking were very similar to what other veterans were asking. What did their own participation in it mean? Was it a just or righteous war? Was it, uh, was it worth it? At a really fundamental level, was it worth it? And chaplains come up on the whole with an answer that says, no, it probably wasn't worth it at the, at the grand scheme of things, but their religious training and their religious background allows them to conclude that it was, that they could still see God's providence or God's hand uh, in in what they did, and so they still have a relatively positive interpretation of their Vietnam experience, which is unlike uh, many many collective 
narratives from veterans from that war, uh, where it where Vietnam was um, psychologically damaging mm-hmm. and uh, unfinished and unsettling. Chaplains eventually tend to make peace with with the war and their their role in it. So, so how do you make sense of why that happened? Because I mean, a lot of the sort of trauma that the soldiers are experiencing, you know, there are lots of cases that you describe in your book where the chaplains, you know, are right there with them in the firefights and other things. So sure, I think some of it has to do with chaplains' relative maturity, both in terms of age and education. They simply have more tools to cope with it. Mm-hmm. Um, they simply have more uh, a, a better developed vocabulary about ethics, about morality, about spirituality uh, that that soldiers don't always have, and they tend to view it from a theological or spiritual lens. And so, for most Christian chaplains, and that's who most of these guys are, um, it would be it would be unusual to view something. That, that was outside of, of God's providential plan. Mm-hmm. Uh, even, you know, even in the late 20th century, that still focuses the way that they think. And I think when I, when I started the project, I actually expected to find more chaplains who experienced what we might call a, a crisis of faith, mm-hmm. who lost their faith or left, um, left the clergy or renounced, uh, renounced God or something like that. And it almost never happens. Uh, there are only a couple of examples that, that I can point to where that was the case. Um, for the most part, they found their faith strengthened. They found their, um, their commitment to serving uh, soldiers or airmen or sailors or Marines to be uh, redoubled rather than, rather than a waste of, uh, of time, and I think that's that's perhaps the other important point is they, on the whole, saw their role as a pastoral one, as a ministerial one to the soldiers who were there. Uh, that it was it was a vocation in the in the literal sense of the word, a calling uh, to minister to the military, rather than um, that they weren't there to to really fight and win the war. They were there to to serve the the people who were doing the fighting. And I think that that helped them um, in, a, in a psychological sense just to be able to, to justify what they were doing and to make sense of what they had done. Now, I know I'm, I'm, I'm remembering correctly, most of the stuff, the sources you're using are archival sources and written things. But you had to do, a, you did a few interviews and oral history kinds of things for this project, didn't you? I did uh, a few interviews and then... Uh, and so most of them were very were pretty extensive, two or three hours. Uh, one person I met a couple different times, um, and I think that that really added for me some rich texture to to the stories because you could of course ask follow up questions and see uh, and probe a little bit a, a little bit more deeply. Um, they were all three actually very diff- had very different experiences both in the war and afterwards. Um, one of the ones I interviewed was actually, I would say, in the minority, uh, in the fact that that he he felt um, he didn't fully reconcile uh, the war in his faith and and was was still quite um, quite embittered and quite critical of it even even forty years later. And then there was another um, 
another person who, who started a veterans counseling and he continued to, to remain involved with uh, Vietnam veterans for 30 years after the war, even as he was dealing with PTSD and, uh, and his own sort of trauma from, from that, he, he continued to try to help other people uh, deal with, with, the, with the aftermath of war. And then a, a third um, who went back to school and remained in the clergy, but has has been relatively un, unattached or unaffiliated with the military since uh, mm-hmm. since Vietnam. So three really different different ways of dealing with it, but all of them were were indicative of, of how people responded and really helped me uh, to categorize and to to classify some of the the broader responses that I was seeing in memoirs or in publications or in the archives. So how'd you go about finding these guys? I, um, I put, basically I put advertisements in a bunch of, uh, in a bunch of journals and in, uh, in, on websites and on listservs and things like that. And they, people responded really generously. Um, some people agreed to be interviewed. Others sent me, um, sort of copies of, of books that they had written but not published or of, of mm. newspaper clippings or things like that. So I, I got a flood of, of responses from chaplains uh, just, by, just by asking and, and the sort of pers- and the network, uh, people, people telling friends and you know, having grandfathers and, and things like that. So it was, it was a really neat, um, if unconventional, research that I don't think I, I couldn't have explained the methodology in my dissertation proposal because um, it just sort of happened informally and, and on the fly. That's, I think, the way a lot of good research happens is that, you know, right. you stumble upon something and you, you know, accidentally find other things. And that's sort of uh, where you find all the really good stuff, the things that you systematically look for. Sometimes that works and sometimes it's... Yeah, it's the it's the unexpected turns that that things take that were always the most the most interesting, um, and they're the things that are unpredictable, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that that no one could have could have guessed or written about in a sort of formal way. So, how is the chaplaincy different today as a consequence of what happened in Vietnam? Yeah, I think this is I this is a really important piece of the of the question. Um, when I started writing about Vietnam, I vowed to not be one of the people who blames everything on Vietnam. <laughs> and I, I'm afraid that I've, in fact, become one of those people. Um, Vietnam has pretty substantial effects on the way the chaplaincy looks. Uh, even now, the legacy of it is pretty significant. Most importantly, it changes the denominational uh, demographic profile of the chaplaincy. Um, in the, in the beginning stages of the Vietnam War, as it had been for, for years and years before, chaplains were a portion roughly in proportion to the number of adherents that they had in the military. And so what that meant in practice was that chaplains were about one-third Catholic, uh, one-third liturgical or high church Protestants, and one-third evangelical or other. And that was, that was always sort of rankled the, the evangelicals that they just got lumped in uh, with, with everybody. The other, okay. Um, yeah, so evangelicals, Mormons, Jews, everybody. And um, during Vietnam, 
they had a consistently difficult time uh, getting Catholic chaplains. By the end of the war, it was almost impossible to find moderate uh, to liberal high church liturgical Protestants, but there were evangelical um, clergy sort of banging at the door, beating on the door, wanting to get in. Hmm. And they made the decision that, that filling the chaplain billets was more important than the denomination of the person filling them. And I think that was a reasonable decision. Um, but what it means is that the, the quota system, which was loose, but that was their goal, basically went away. And so they started just filling chaplain billets as they could. They still have um, sort of goals that they're supposed to meet. They're still supposed to roughly um, mirror the, the force but the, the chaplaincy, as a result, became much more conservative, much more evangelical, even as, after Vietnam, the number of religious groups that could potentially be represented and the number of people who could potentially be chaplains was actually increasing. So they start uh, allowing female chaplains in about 1974, uh, in the aftermath of Vietnam and looking toward the all-volunteer force. Uh, they eventually create a... a a way for Muslim chaplains or Buddhist chaplains uh, or even Hindu chaplains uh, eventually to become part of the force. But the, the chaplaincy is overwhelmingly evangelical mm -hmm. and Protestant. So right now in the force, the military chaplaincy is about 90% Protestant, um, or excuse me, 90%, no, 90% Protestant, about 98% Christian. Uh, so non-Christian religious groups are represented in the chaplaincy, but it's very, 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 very small. Mm -hmm. um, and this this creates a certain culture and a certain um, atmosphere in which religious issues are dealt with in the in the military. And one of the one of the consistent issues that we see right now is a growing number of Americans, and particularly a growing number of young Americans who make up the bulk of the enlisted force in the military services, who identify as having no religious preference, who identify as being agnostic or atheist or humanist. Uh, some surveys say that's up to 30% now among the enlisted, uh, enlisted personnel. And so when you have an enlisted force, that's about 30% uh, unaffiliated, but a chaplain corps that is predominantly Protestant Christian and, and uh, evangelical and evangelical at that, you know, so even, even among, um, among those, those Protestant chaplains, about 66% of them would be classified as evangelical. So you have a pretty significant mismatch in the chaplaincy and the force that they're serving. And I think, most of the time, it still works pretty well. The chaplains agree not to not to proselytize. Uh, they're not supposed to convert people, um, and they they, for the most part, take that really seriously. When they don't, they run into some trouble, and they they end up on the front pages of, of newspapers and such. Um, so there's a growing move now to increase the diversity of chaplains uh, to allow for say Wiccan chaplains or a humanist chaplain, um, so, that it, so that it more closely mirrors the force. But these are things that take a long time to happen, and there's, a, there's quite a bit of, of 
sort of cultural baggage and history mm-hmm. that goes along with changing those things. And, and again, the legacy is you can draw a direct line um, to the, to the Vietnam era chaplaincy and the change in the demography that we see there. So you've been teaching at, at what, the, the Air War College now for a couple of years, and before that you taught at West Point for, for three four or years, four years. Yeah. yeah. So I, I have no idea what teaching at a military academy is like, and I'm imagining most other people don't. So what makes teaching at a military academy different from teaching at a more traditional university? Yeah, mostly the hours are earlier. Um, <laughs> So at West Point, we started classes at 7.30, except for our special days when we had too much to do, and so we started at 6.30. Uh, And that was pretty terrible. Uh, It was was as bad an idea as you might think. Um, You know, 20-year-olds are not made for 6.30 in the morning, uh, not to do sort of hard historical thinking. But... Teaching at West Point, um, they were they're undergrads, right? They're eighteen to twenty-two years old. Um, they're wearing uniforms, but for the most part, they're they're students, and they um, they had lots to do. Uh, but I've never been in a school where students don't have lots to do. Um, they were interested in in history, probably more so than than some. Uh, they were interested in, in current events for sure. But I found I found the classroom teaching there to be a lot of fun and to be really quite in, quite enjoyable. Um, so in the classroom, I think there are relatively few differences. And even now that I'm teaching uh, lieutenant colonels and colonels uh, who are senior officers, this is probably the last time they'll be in school as a military officer. At the end of the day, um, students are students. They're still learning. They've got lots of uh, lots of background and lots of things that they bring with them. Mm-hmm. My students now, uh, they're never quiet. That's actually really enjoyable. Uh, I never I never stare out into a sea of blank, uninterested faces. They always have something to say. Uh, sometimes you have to work to get what they have to say sort of back into the realm of what's relevant to the mm-hmm. class that day. Uh, but they're they're usually pretty engaged and they um, and they are they're professional, interested uh, people. The challenges tend to come with the clash of civilian academic culture and military organizational culture. They're really, really quite different. Um, civilian academics, right, tend to be pretty independent, pretty, um, maybe not, loners is probably too strong of a word, but we like our space and we mm. like our time, right? And the military culture is one where your office door is open, where FaceTime is really, really important, where you want to be seen in your office and things like that. Um, and it's sometimes difficult to explain you know, why you may need to be in the library for a day or work from home. Sure. Um, and, and so that, that can cause some, cause some friction, as can the, the sort of bureaucratic nature of of the military and, and academia has its own bureaucracy as well. And so in either at West Point or at the war college, you, you pile two different bureaucracies on top of each other. Uh, and it can be, it can be pretty stunning sometimes in terms of what hoops there are to jump through to get, you know, to get new courses approved or to order books or to get funding for conferences or things like that, because you have to work through 
both in an academic structure and a military structure, um, which can occasionally be be pretty maddening. Um, but it's been an, it's been a really interesting um, sort of career path. It's not one I expected to take, but I think few of us in the profession took exactly the path we expected to take. Um, yeah, I remember you saying in graduate school that you wanted to teach at a small college at one point. Yeah, that's, I mean, and I, you know, that's sort of the life I, I had envisioned for myself, and it's certainly not the life I've ended up with. Um, but I'm pretty happy doing what I do. Um, I really enjoy the, the contemporary aspects of it. I teach in an interdisciplinary department. We deal with current events. Uh, some days I feel more like a political scientist or a security studies uh, guru than a, than a historian. And most days I, I, I enjoy that. I get to I get to do what in other worlds might be a hobby as part of my part of my job. Mm-hmm. Um, and it feels policy relevant. I get to I get to comment on current uh, current issues and current problems. We talk about you know, religious accommodation. We talk about issues of ethics and, and gender and all sorts of things. Um, and I'm able to use my historical training and, and background as a historian to, to, I hope, bring a little bit more complexity and nuance to, to these issues and to, uh, to teach my students and my, my faculty, my fellow faculty members, some of whom are, are military officers, um, to maybe look perhaps a little bit more deeply at some of the, some of the things that are, are going on in the world. Is there ever any tension in the classroom between you as a civilian who hasn't spent any time in the military and some of these soldiers who have, who have devoted a lifetime and have seen things and done things that we've read about and studied but haven't actually done? But haven't actually done. There's some, and I actually, I, I say that I've got three strikes. I'm a female, a civilian, and right now I'm about... 10 or 12 years younger than all of my students. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the, the first day of class, we sort of first introduce ourselves. There's a, there's a healthy dose of skepticism sometimes. Mm. Uh, sometimes that's palpable. Um, but I, I, I tend to just sort of deal with it up front and say, look, there's some things I know. Mm-hmm. There's a reason they hired me. <laughs> um, you know, trust me to do, to do my job. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I promise to never give you advice on how to fly a jet, <laughs> uh, you know? And so I think it's about, it's about mutual respect for the experiences that everybody brings to the table that they, like you said, they have a, in this case, a career of service. They've deployed multiple times. Um, our air force pilots have been flying missions in the middle East for 20 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, we talk about you know, 13 years of war. And in fact, they haven't left since 1991. Uh, so 30 years almost. So they have they have an incredible wealth of experience that they bring to the table. Um, what they don't bring to the table, right, is academic sort of analytical training. And so that's what we that's what we try to do is figure out where the um, where the nexus can be between professional experience and and academic training and, and reading and analysis. Uh, and theory and things like that, and I think we we come up with a pretty successful successful way to do it. But it's it's not always easy, and um, it it occasionally it can occasionally cause friction. But you sort of deal with it head on, and luckily that's that's another piece of military culture um, 
is to sort of just confront uh, confront problems and to confront uh, yeah. what's what's right in front of you uh, pretty directly. I mean, the only reason why I ask is I've had a, a few experiences both here in Edinburgh and but especially in North Dakota where I'd have a classroom of, of undergraduates or graduate students and one or two of them had served in the military and so whenever we got to the soldiers experience in whatever war we were studying usually the civil war you know the the soldier would say well let me tell you about you know what right. being a soldier is really like and and yeah it was part of my brain actually... says these are really useful comments because this person has experiences that nobody else in the room does and part of me says this is only tangentially <laughs> relevant to 21st century is not like uh, not like 1862, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, it was interesting. I think I probably had more of that sort of experience at West Point than I did uh, than I do now, mm. which is interesting because most of my West Point cadets hadn't actually. But they'd read a lot about it. <laughs> done it or been there either. Um, been there in their head. Yeah. yeah, or they, you know, they were, or they were, they were going there, and so they, or they had been through basic training, so they, they sort of knew things. Um, and I think I, I, I just use it as an opportunity to talk about uh, the nature of experience and how things change over time and uh, what historical constants there might be. So, but, but yeah, you, you, you deal with that sort of skepticism or that level of uh, personal connection to a subject when you're talking about military history that that you don't always deal with in other um, in other contexts. Can you make them do push-ups? No, I don't think so. I did. I did have a cadet who I was advising his senior thesis, who would just come in and preemptively do push-ups in my office. He thought that, he thought that I was going to yell at him for something. And and therefore, it'd be better to do the push-ups just, first. Even though I couldn't make him do them, I, I he was he was an odd he was an odd duck. Um, but he that was that was how he how he he interacted. Well, that's great. Yeah. So what are you working on now, now that your book is done and you've got it on your shelf and whatnot? Uh, sure. Is the, it too early to ask what you're working on next? <laughs> no, the victory lap is short, right? That's the, uh, the sigh of relief is, is short-lived. Um, I'm trying to finish up a couple of really short projects, uh, get some journal articles and stuff, offshoots from the book, things that didn't make it in. Uh, and get those off my desk. I'm also uh, going to start on two two book projects. I've started preliminary stuff. One is a, a quick collection of, of essays uh, about religion and the contemporary military experience. Um, so questions of religious accommodation, free speech, um, geared primarily toward a professional audience of, of chaplains and commanders. Uh, and then the second one is a is a larger project about the role of narrative in U.S. strategy and strategic decision making in the 20th century, and that one's a lot more nebulous and a lot more fuzzy, and I've got to do a lot more reading before I have <laughs> really smart things to say. But I think the way we tell stories matters, and the way we tell stories and formulate stories, um, because it's the way we make sense of the world. I think that affects. Um, leaders at the strategic level, and it shapes the, the choices that they see in front of them, uh, depending on who you define as good guys and bad guys and what you think the resolution will be. And, um, and then it certainly shapes how the public interacts with strategic choices uh, and choosing one narrative over another 
I think can have have long term consequences, as can having a, a too finely ingrained narrative that um, that that limits choices rather than rather than expands them. So, are you heading back to the Triangle this summer? I'm gonna I'm gonna go for a couple weeks uh, to see uh, to see family, and uh, we're actually my mom and I are gonna take my grandfather to Normandy. Really. Mm-hmm. For the 70th anniversary, so I'm going to be be in North Carolina for a few days, but I'm going to I'm going to vacation in uh, in London and in Normandy. Yeah, we'll have summer. to pass mid Atlantic because I'm, I'm yes. doing the opposite. So, uh, <laughs> well, it was really great talking with you, and if I don't get a chance to see you this summer, uh, I'm sure our paths will cross again in person before too long. Very good. Have a great, I guess, evening for you. Now. <laughs> yes. All right. Workday is over. Talk to you later. Very good. Well, that was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed having the opportunity to talk to Jackie again, and I'm really excited about her new book. We've got a website for the show, AmericanHistoryUntucked.blogspot.com, or if you have questions or comments, or if you'd like to suggest a guest or a topic for the show, you can email me at AmericanHistoryUntucked at gmail.com. Till next time, stay tuned. We'll have more episodes coming up before too long.